What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is a great one. I sat down with billionaire Mark Lohr for an hour last week, and he dropped some serious knowledge. Mark is probably one of the best entrepreneurs of our generation. He has founded, built, and sold multiple companies, including Diapers.com, which he sold to Amazon for $550 million in 2011, and Jet.com, which he sold to Walmart for $3.3 billion in 2016. But after spending the last few years running Walmart's e-commerce division, Mark is getting back in the game. He has started two new businesses, launched a venture capital firm, and even teamed up with Alex Rodriguez to buy the Minnesota Timberwolves for $1.5 billion. Mark and I discuss a wide range of topics, including the qualities that make a successful entrepreneur, how to get comfortable with failure, the importance of an idea versus the actual execution of that idea, the questions that Mark asked during every interview, how he negotiated the Timberwolves deal, his next multi-billion dollar startup idea, and his thoughts on current investment trends. This episode was jam-packed with high signal content, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Root really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Athletic Brewing. When it comes to non-alcoholic beers, Athletic Brewing changed the game. Their beer tastes amazing, and since each can is only 25 calories, 5 carbs, and made with organic grains, I can now enjoy the taste of a great beer without compromising my sleep or performance. But here's the best part. Athletic Brewing is now offering my listeners 20% off their first order with code JOE20. That's J-O-E-2-0. So as you prepare to stock the fridge for March Madness, now's the perfect time to buy a refreshing, great-tasting beer without the consequences. Next up is 8sleep. 8sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and nature's best medicine. Consistent good sleep can help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues, yet still more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep and temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot, but now I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have ever before all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. The result? Eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. The Pod Pro covered by Eight Sleep is so popular that it has garnered attention from CEOs, high performers such as Olympic gold medalist Red Gerard, and top CrossFit athletes, including the 2021 fittest man on earth, Justin Medoros, and UFC heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou. They're all powered by Eight Sleep to make the most of their workouts and recovery. Remember, Good sleep is the ultimate game changer. So go to 8sleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. 8sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and the UK. All right, let's get into this episode. 
Joe Pompliano, runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. I have a million questions and we only have about 30 or 40 minutes today, so I'm going to go rapid fire. But first, I was doing research for this and I stumbled upon that you qualified on the U.S. bobsled team. What the hell is that all about? <laughs> How do you find that? It's on your Wikipedia page. Yeah, it was the uh, national bobsled team back in 1996. Yeah, it was just a random series of events that happened, starting with the U.S. National Bobsled Team was in New York City for a week, basically to raise awareness for bobsledding. They had a track down at the World Financial Center, and they encouraged people to go and push the sled and they would time you. When they had this thing that I wasn't really paying a lot of attention to that was like, oh, the fastest time of the week will invite you up to Lake Placid. So I get a call, I don't know, a couple weeks later, and they said, hey, did you push the sled down there? And I said, yeah. I said, you had the fastest time of the week. We'd like to invite you to Lake Placid. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> what, 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 what is that all about? You know, what do you do? And he's like, well, you come up to Lake Placid and then we're going to test you. We're going to test you strength, speed, agility, all this stuff. And if you pass the test, we'll train you to push the bobsled. So I said, okay, I went up there, did their testing. And lo and behold, they said, yeah, you had a great score and we want to train you for a month before the uh, time trials. And so I asked for a month off from work. I was in banking at the time and basically trained up in Lake Placid. And then we had the time trials, you know, where you had to push the sled, try to qualify. And I just barely squeaked in and qualified for the national team. I would have had to travel for two years around the world prior to the Olympics. And I chose not to do that. One, because I was three years into my career and was doing well and didn't want to disrupt that. And also, those two years, a lot could happen, you know, in terms of making the team. I had just squeaked by onto the team and it was probably unlikely I would be in a a sled that would be contending for a medal there at the Olympics. So, so, so I got two questions quickly off of that. One, I was in banking. I used to work at JP Morgan. What the hell was the conversation like when you told them you need a month off to go train for bobsledding? (laughs) Fortunately, I had a good, had a good relationship with my, my boss there, but yeah, it was, it was a funny kind of thing. And I basically, I knew that I, like wasn't going to go up there for like a couple months. So I literally spent the next couple months basically pushing cars around parking lots you know, to, to train. I didn't know what to do. You know, I was like, all right, well, so I basically did that for a couple months before. I recently climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't have a hiking background at all. I'm from, I'm from North Carolina, but I live in Miami now. Right. And there's obviously certainly no elevation, but no mountains either. <laughs> so I, I, I tweeted out saying, Hey, I'm going to go climb the mountain. It was for charity. And we were installing water wells around in the region or whatever. But part of it is to, you know, if you're going to raise money and ask people to donate, you got to go do something that sucks. So <laughs> we climbed the mountain, but to train, people were laughing because I basically just filled up my book bag with as much weight as I could find. And I would just climb stairs in the apartment building. I would go from the first floor to like the 60th floor. And it's hot as hell in there. It's miserable. And it probably doesn't even prepare you that well, right? Like you can't really prepare for elevation by doing that. But I'm sure you got your quads and everything like in in good shape. Yeah, it was it was a good workout for sure, but there's nothing like 20,000 feet of elevation. I don't I don't care what you're doing, right? It's just it's different. Okay, that's a good start. Let's <laughs> talk about entrepreneurship. You are fascinating, right? You've built multiple big businesses at this point. I think there's probably four or five at this point. You've successfully exited from I know the pit that you sold for a few million dollars and then everyone I think knows diapers.com that you sold to Amazon for over 500 million dollars and then jet.com that was purchased by eBay or acquired by eBay for over $3 billion. So Mark, like just point blank, what makes you so successful at this in an industry that not many people succeed at? Yeah. I mean, I don't think anything, anything real special. It involves a lot of hard work, the ability to sort of take risk and then some luck. When something doesn't work out, you have to just get back up and do it again. But I do think it's the combination of just, you know, incredibly hard work ethic and, risk-taking ability. So I think you need both and then you need luck on top of it. You know, that's, that's really what it takes. My experience is that one of the things stopping people is 
the ability that you mentioned to take risk, right? Most people are just risk adverse. They either wait too long, right? And they don't have the ability to take the risk because they have family and kids and all these different things, or they're just more comfortable working nine to five and doing these jobs. Was that something that you always had? Or is that something that you think you grew into the ability to, to fail and take risk? Yeah, I know. I've always had it. And I think it's because I, I failed so much as a kid growing up. My parents were sort of this laissez-faire, you know, just go and you, you'll figure everything out yourself. They weren't they were the opposite of helicopter parents. You know, they, they let me fail. They let me try things. And I learned a lot from that. I also became very comfortable with failure. Like there was no pressure to get good grades. I didn't get good grades and my parents didn't care about it. You know, they thought a C was fine, just fine. You know, it was that sort of attitude. I don't know. I think it really helped me to be comfortable with, with failure. Of course, I never wanted to fail, but when you're comfortable with it and you know it's okay, it just allows you to, to take outsized risks. How do you think about idea generation, right, for these startups and these companies? So is it just something of power law takes hold and you're looking for the biggest asymmetric opportunity? Or is there some other kind of criteria that needs to fit your bill to start a company? Yeah, I think it, it comes in all shapes and forms. I don't think there's any, any real formula. I think the idea is to be open, spend time thinking. I think most people don't spend enough time, entrepreneurs, you know, thinking, just thinking, spend an hour a day thinking about ideas, thinking about the world, thinking about what's working, what's not working, what could be done better. And then you'll get lots of ideas and some will stick and some won't. And the one that doesn't seem to go away is the one you should probably do. You know, And that's always happened with me. Lots of ideas in and out. And one of them just stays, kind of stays with me. And I can't shake it. You know, I can't find a reason not to do it. And that's certainly what happened with the last startup, for sure. What did people say to you, your friends and family, when you told them you were going to sell diapers online? Oh, <laughs> I remember we had moved into a neighborhood in Mount Lakes, New Jersey. And my neighbor tells this story. It's really funny at every campfire, you know, that he met me in the driveway, his new neighbor. And he said, well, you know, what do you do for a living? And I say, you know, I, I sell diapers over the Internet. He went back to his wife and said, hey, don't get too close to these guys. They're not going to be here that much longer. <laughs> Yeah, that that business may not be around. Yeah, and then I, I would love just to, you know when diapers was was really successful at, at some point towards the end there, I would love to just tell people you know when they ask me what I did, I just tell them you know I'm a diaper salesman. You know, yeah, that's amazing. So off of that though, how much weight do you put? I don't know if like a specific number is necessary, or if you even think about it that way. But how much weight do you put in the actual idea behind a startup versus the execution? I mean, I, I've always said, I think any idea can work. I, it's not about the idea and it's all about execution. It's about execution. It's, it's, it's VCP. It's vision capital people. You have to have a big vision for whatever idea it is. And it doesn't matter what it is. You need to be able to hire great people and raise capital. And if you can do that, it could be a really big, successful business. I mean, people look back and say, wow, that was such a great idea, diapers.com. And I say, really? Because <laughs> all we're doing is selling diapers over the internet. It wasn't the idea at all. It never is really. And, and I've seen great ideas fail and bad ideas work. And it, it always comes back to the founder, the team, their ability to raise capital and, and sort of think big and, and shape that vision of the future. What was your process for raising capital early on? Begging, basically. <laughs> you know, the very first startup, we didn't raise any venture capital or anything like that. Were you all in at this point personally? But that first startup, you know, I invested 390000 into that startup, investors would ask me, I just have a question here. It says 390,000. Why didn't you just invest 400? That's kind of a weird number. And I said, well, because I don't have 400. I only had 390,000 in my bank account and literally took the bank account and just boom, invested the whole thing. And yeah, I was all in, you can say. But it's funny, it's, it's self-fulfilling because being all in in that way built the confidence up of investors to say, wait, this guy can't fail. Like he can't afford to fail. He has to make this work. And I always try and in every startup put myself in a position where it has to work, where there's no escape hatch, no plan B. It's you're all in. And that's the only way to, to get the very best you've got to get into that, what I call sixth gear. And so, yeah, the first investment was 60 basically angel investors, each putting in like $80,000 on average or something like that. And it was yeah, just knocking on doors. And I didn't know anyone either. It wasn't like I was like came from a wealthy family. I didn't know anyone wealthy. And it was like my boss at the bank where I quit and, you know, to do this, basically put in the first 50 and made a couple intros. 
And from there, they made a couple intros and they made a couple intros and just basically this web started to build. And eventually, after we got 60 investors on board, we had our $5 million of capital. Does raising money from family and friends, it sounds like you think that's a positive because it makes you somewhat responsible, right? Is that correct? Yeah. After I made the money at diapers.com, it wasn't for me about putting myself in a, in a position financially where I was going to be at, at risk. So I couldn't do that, that same strategy. But bringing your aunts and uncles and parents and brothers and sister and your closest friends and taking their money, putting it into the business. Yeah, that's even more pressure than personally having you know, your own finances in there. And so that was a, a big motivator and driver for not being able to fail. And people, I always, I'm always a little bit skeptical. Like when somebody starts a business, they don't put their own money in and they don't take their family or friends money or anything like that. I'm like, no, no, I just, I just don't want to, I just want institutional money. It's like, yeah. I mean, I, I understand why, because it puts a lot of pressure and this might not work and you may need to bail and then you got a problem on your hands. And so I, I think it's important that you, you're willing to sort of go to the mat and certainly look for that. Yeah. Athletes come on here all the time and I talk to many people offline. And one of the things they always ask is like, how should I know if I should invest in deals, right? Athletes are brought venture deals all the time. They're trying to decipher kind of which ones are the good ones and which ones that they should do. And ultimately a lot of it comes down to just like, who's bringing me the deal one, but two, how much are they putting in, right? If you're putting in a material amount of your own capital and it's something that you truly believe in, or even if you're starting the business as an entrepreneur and you're asking people for money, uh, I totally agree. It's, it's super important to have skin in the game, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you have to know that the entrepreneur is all in. And a second time entrepreneur or third time entrepreneur is just it's much, much safer bet, I think. If you're an athlete thinking about investing in a startup and also thinking about building a diversified portfolio too. It's not the chances of just picking one and that one working and becoming big is, is probably low. But if you build a portfolio, find good founders, founders that had successful exits, and then you know, even better if you can get into startups a little bit later, like in the Series A, when you've got well-known venture capitalists coming in. If you're a prominent athlete, that's probably what I would do because you'd be able to have access to those deals where most people wouldn't be able to and get into those A rounds with really good venture capitalists behind it. Yeah. One of the things I always say is like, use your name to your advantage, right? Good venture capitalists and big venture capitalists want to hang out with the best athletes in the world. They want to go to dinner with them. They want to go to games and want to do all these things. So use that to your advantage and, and try to get access to deal flow that you wouldn't always have. But when it comes to, you're, you're obviously a serial entrepreneur at this point, you founded multiple companies and found success multiple times. How has previous success helped you when you started new businesses, right? Have you been able to take learnings and just hit the ground running and go from zero to one immediately? Yes. Yeah. Every time I do a new startup and I have a new startup right now called Wonder, with each startup, yeah, it becomes easier to raise capital, easier to hire people because you've got a track record. So that makes it improves your chances quite a lot. But also you learn. You learn, you do things differently. That experience of getting starting a company, exiting a company, and all the things in between, to be able to do that multiple times, each time you're improving your skills, you're getting better. You know, athletes, you know, you sort of get better with age with this stuff. I'm sure at some point it'll sort of go the other way. But uh, for now, it's, it's you know, still in that growth phase. You touched on hiring, and that's one of the things I think a lot about because entrepreneurs in general, and certainly those specifically that are running high growth companies that are scaling fast, run into the problem of like, you just can't hire enough good people fast enough. How do you deal with that at all the startups that you've built? Like, how do you think about finding the right people? And how do you think about actually interviewing them to hire the right people? Yeah, so a couple things. One, it's important, I think, early on, if you want to scale to get a really good chief people officer. That's one of the things I've learned over time is the importance of the chief people officer. Like that is, is got to be one of your first and biggest hires. And I think a lot of people think about it, human resources. They don't think about it as chief people officer. This person is going to help you recruit and retain the very best people. And especially if you're moving fast, you want somebody there that can build a, a recruiting staff and build that culture right from day one. So I'd say that's really important. The other thing is to build a compensation system that allows you to scale fast. And so at the last two companies, basically built a comp system where everyone sort of at the same level makes the same amount of money and a, a way to calculate how much stock options you should give each person at each level. And then as the company grows in value, a formula to very quickly adjust how many stock options the new person should get relative to the person before based on how the company's increasing valuation. Building sort of that comp system in the beginning 
So you don't have to like think about every person you hire. Well, how many options should we give them? What's fair? Oh, we hired this person at this amount. We hired that person at that amount and try. It's very messy as opposed to having a system where everybody you hire at any time, you know exactly what the comp is. I'm hiring a director today. It's 10,000 options. I'm hiring a director, you know, a year from now, it's 7,000 options. A year later, it's 3,000 options. Like you plug in basically the value of the company and it will spit out number of options. So I think compensation system is important. And then on interviewing, interview time is valuable and you want to have a high hit rate on interview. And so I spend a lot more time now on resume reading than interviewing. I think in the beginning startups, you just, you get some resumes and you're like, yeah, let me talk to this person. They have the relevant experience and then you bring them in. And then a lot of times you get honeypotted. I call it honeypot. Basically you just get on with the person and you're like, oh, you, you did this experience. I've got a great conversation in this hour. I like you. And then, boom, you hire them. And what I've learned from experience is that's probably the worst thing you could possibly do. It also leads to unconscious bias, too. So it's not great for diversity and things like that. But now I, I know that the resume tells the true story, and I focus a lot more on the resume. And when the interview time comes, I'm already inclined to hire the person based on their experience. It's really about core value fit and culture fit. At that point, when you read a resume, I'm looking for people that have a basically a certain level of, of success in every job that they've had. So I look at that, like, what have you done? How many years have you been there? And, and what have you done there? And then most important is what move did you make when you left that job? Did you go to a better company with a better position? Did you go lateral? Did you go and to a, a higher position in a lower company, you know, did you go from Amazon Amazon, and then you go to Sears? That to me would, would raise a flag. If you go to Google and you leave there in 18 months and go to a company that I've never heard of, that also is a red flag. There's things like that. And every resume tells a story and every resume is different. It's certainly more an art than a science. But if you just put yourself in the person's shoes, like right out of college and say, okay, assume I'm a superstar get into the person's head, you take that first job, you're a superstar, right? What did you do there? And then when you moved, was that the move of a superstar? Does that make sense? And you can see that this is not going to be able to you know, figure out whether somebody's in the 40th percentile or the 60th percentile. But if you're looking for top 10% talent, like I always am, then you can. There are certain patterns, top 10 percenters, their resumes look a certain way. It's the consistent degree of success and upward movement that jumps out off the page every time. If everything else was equal in the equation and you were presented with two people that one had better technical skills, right, could actually do the job better, but the other one was much better from a mission standpoint, they actually believed in the business and believed in the company, which one would you go with? I'd always go with the mission-oriented person. You know, because as a startup, you sort of have to pick. You can't get somebody with the relevant experience and then also like exhibit all the, the traits I look for, smart, passionate, optimistic, tenacious, adaptable, kind, and empathetic, my spotic traits. So I'm looking, I'm looking at somebody with those traits and then trying to find somebody with those traits and the experience and good cultural fit is impossible, especially early on. Those people are too expensive. And so you have to pick one or the other. And I've had a lot of success basically bringing people into the organization that don't actually have the relevant experience but they've got the right traits, the right attitude, they're mission-oriented, and they're willing to run through a wall to sort of you know, help the company succeed. And you know, very quickly, those people, that they're smart, passionate, they got the right attitude, they will learn the function. And then a year or two years later, they wind up being one of the experts in that field. You know, And so I call it best available athlete in terms of when you're recruiting people. Too many people, I think, make the mistake of going with experience before anything else. They, oh, you, you've done this before. This is what I'm looking for. Great. And you bring them in. And those people, a lot of times, they'll be good the first few months, but then you outgrow them really fast and you're kind of stuck. Yeah. I think people probably don't think about this enough today, given all the success that you've had, but I'm sure you've dealt with self-doubt at times, right? In the past and, and people that didn't believe in you or your mission or your vision. How do you deal with that today? Yeah. I mean, it's still... Still to this day, as experiences I am raising capital, I've got a 10% hit rate. I'll talk to 50, 50 venture capital investors and only five will want to invest. And why is that? Because your idea is so out there or it's something else? There's always just lots of factors. It's timing, 
where they are in the, in the cycle of their fund, whether it's the right stage, whether it's the right valuation, whether it's the right sector that they're focused on. Like there's all kinds of things and, and they may all agree, hey, like we love the team. We think the idea is big. It's a big market. You guys have great progress, you know, showing great results, but they don't invest. And I think people don't really understand because I meet a lot of entrepreneurs that they'll talk to like five or six, you know, give five or six pitches and they get no's and then kind of like get down and they change their deck. They're like, well, those six people that said no said they would invest if we did X. Not really. They just say that. But then you change it and then you you go out again and then you, you get six more no's and they tell you to change it a different way. And then you change it again. And I think it's so important that basically you you have that clear vision and strategy and you know exactly where you're going, and how you're going to get there. And Don't let any venture capitalist in a one hour pitch change your mind or have you change your deck. Once you start changing your deck, you're lost. Forget it. You don't know who you are, where you're going. You're just following sort of the, the wind. That doesn't work. And so be prepared. If you're looking to raise institutional venture capital, be prepared and get set up to have, you know, 50 plus meetings. Every time I've raised money, I've had at least, you know, sort of 50 pitch meetings, pitch decks that I've gone through. How many times do you think you've been told no throughout your career? I was thinking about this. I've done, I've done now 13 rounds of venture capital financing. I've had, so I've probably pitched call it 500 times or something. And my hit rate is, is less than 10% for sure. If you want to be nice, 10%, that's 450 no's, you know, over my career. And this is, you know, this is even the second time founder, third time founder, still getting the no's. My hit rate is definitely better than it was the first time. I think the first time was maybe like one out of 50, you know, and it was like, we got that one investor after 50 pitches. It's tough. There's nothing tougher than raising money for a startup and an entrepreneur. And that's why I always tell people, like, raise as much money as you can. People say, oh, I don't want the dilution. I can raise more now. There is good and bad markets. Sometimes the markets are flush with cash and it's easy to raise money. And sometimes it's impossible. And I think a lot of founders don't really appreciate that, especially in good times. And, you know, companies don't fail for any other reason than they run out of capital. You never fail. You never, you're never done until you don't have capital. And so capital is a, is a rare and precious resource. If you can raise it, take it. And don't worry about the dilution because you should have enough confidence in yourself to at least increase the valuation of the company by more than the dilution. Okay, so you take an extra 10% dilution. Big deal. You have all this extra capital. Just increase the valuation by more than 10% from what it would have been had you not raised the capital. It's always easy math. It never doesn't pay to raise capital unless you just simply can't do anything with it. Like, okay, if I'm going to take all this capital, I don't know what to do with it. Okay, then then don't raise it. But if you, if you have a reason and a good place to invest it, take it. Don't worry about the dilution. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I would love to talk a little bit about the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Lynx. So I think everyone knows at this point that yourself and Alex Rodriguez bought or in the process of transitioning ownership of both of those teams. I think you bought them for $1.5 billion or something around there. When I think about sports teams, obviously growing up as a sports fan and, and you did also, like this was always just something that really rich people did, right? Just for fun. But it's also turned into a pretty good investment. Also, we've seen these teams appreciate a lot in value over the last few years. Some people believe this will continue to happen with sports betting and streaming and all these other tailwinds happening. But how much of this is just fun for you versus, hey, this is a really good investment also? Yeah. So... Most of the things in life that are fun that have to do with money and investing usually don't yield good returns. I've been there with two things, <laughs> buying racehorses, for example, fun, not a place to <laughs> make money. And, and you know, you're told going into horse racing, you're going to buy, you better love the sport because you're not going to make money. How does the business of horse racing work? Like just at a high level. At a high level, at a high level, you basically buy some yearlings at the yearling sale, like that have pedigree, you know, and you sort of buy them, you give them to a stable, the stable can get a trainer, they'll train the horse, they'll do everything, they'll put it into races that it makes sense to race. And then you get a percentage of the purse if they win. But meanwhile, you're paying, you know, thousands of dollars every month to the stable. And you look at the purses at the end of the year, and you look at how much you paid, and it's almost always upside down. Every once in a while, I guess you get that home run, you know, like that one in a, in a million. But uh, for most 
courses, you're upside down. And it's fun. You go to the races. You know, I grew up in Staten Island, New York, and my uncles and dad and everyone, they will always bring me to the track as a little kid. And you learn how to read the book and, and bet on the horses and things. It was sort of just a thing you grew up with that was fun. And so I thought, you know, why not take it to the next level and have some fun? But it's it increases the fun level, but it definitely decreases the, the pocketbook. So that's one. The other thing that it also drains money is a vineyard. I tried that too. I, I love red wine. Thought it would be so cool. You know, own a vineyard and know that that pretty much loses money too. And why are those so difficult to run? I mean, if you were to buy a proper, probably large scale operating business that generates a profit, yeah. But if you just want to buy like a boutique vineyard and throw out a few hundred cases of wine a year, that's not going to not going to make any money, and it's not it's not a good investment. So I was sort of blown away by the NBA teams that are increasing in value because I'm like, wait a second, this is like, could it be incredibly fun and I could actually make money, you know? And that's what is so great about owning an NBA team. It literally is going up 10, 15% a year and it doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. So it's a great investment, great place to put capital. But at the same time, what's more fun than a sports fan having the opportunity to be an owner and be involved in helping shape the team? Yeah, one of the stories I always think back when in regards to kind of the fun versus the investment when it comes to sports teams is, is Chamath Papalatia, right? He said, I forget the numbers, so excuse me if they're wrong, but essentially he had started his investment firm and had put almost every dollar that he had into it. But he had some, you know, a few million dollars of cash left aside and he was looking for a diversified asset that had basically no correlation to anything else he was doing. And he was like, eh, you know, a sports team is probably a decent investment. And he got the opportunity to invest in the Warriors. And this was, you know, before the Warriors valuation went up higher than any team in the NBA. <laughs> and it ended up probably being one of his best investments. And to your point, he probably had a lot of fun. Now, he wasn't the majority owner, so a little bit different, but I'm sure he was attending games. He probably got, you know, a championship ring or whatever it is. To me, that's amazing if you can combine the two, right? The entertainment and the fun. Yeah, absolutely. It really is a dream come true. I mean, ever since being a little kid and realizing, well, you weren't going to play professional sports. <laughs> So. Is there any like low hanging fruit when you guys get in and see the business and say, hey, maybe things here or there we could increase and make better immediately. We can do the fan experience a little bit differently or anything like that. Yeah, we're going through a process now of sort of building the foundation. It's called Vision Capital People VCP. I have this framework that I've built to go into the exercise of, of what is the vision? What is the strategy? What's the mission of the organization, the values, putting together a, a proper plan and, and the right organizational structure. So we're going through all that and we're almost complete with that. And there'll definitely be some, some changes that'll happen over time as we build on this foundation. But I also think simultaneously, sometimes, and I've learned this in, in business, the tendency is to wanna to come in and, and make changes, make things happen. Most people I think move too quickly I think it's really important to be thoughtful, build the foundation, and do things in the right order. The right order meaning you need to know who you are, what are your values, what do you stand for, what traits are you looking for in people that you bring into the organization, like who are you, what's the DNA? And if you start hiring people before you know who you are, you might not find people that are a great fit. And so you have to go through that exercise, and it's a lot of work to do the heavy lifting. And then and only then would you bring new people into the organization. I also think there's an importance in having continuity. I think one of the reasons why teams never seem to, to sort of do well, you know, I used to be a big Knicks fan and that was certainly very frustrating over the years. And there always seems to be change, constant change, moving out of GM, moving out of coach, just in general, not, not calling out the Knicks specifically, just in general, moving in and out. And I think there's incredible value in, in continuity of coaching, general manager, the players, like building that true team where people feel bonded and feel a sense of purpose and know that it's not mercenary, it's not just dollars and cents, it's not just a revolving door, but you're building something together that's special and that's going to stand the test of time. And I think that's really important. And if we were to look at the NBA as a league from a valuation perspective 10 years from now, what in your mind is the biggest driver of valuations going forward? Is it private equity firms now investing and expanding the kind of demand? Is it streaming and betting? Is it overseas expansion? Just maybe like a few ideas that you think are really powerful there. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you said it, overseas expansion, I think is, a, is definitely a big part of it. I think just the growth, and the popularity of the sport around the world is growing at a pretty good clip. It's a progressive league. It's diverse. It's forward thinking. Adam's doing a great job. 
ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about the growth in the sport globally. And I think that's that's what it really comes down to, really driving top line revenues. And that ultimately drives valuations. Gotcha. So you've mentioned vision capital people a few times now. And for those that don't know, you and Alex started a venture capital firm also with the same name, and you guys are investing in early stage companies. What exactly are you guys investing in? Yeah, so the, the concept is pretty simple. It's We felt there was a, a void in the venture market as entrepreneurs where there's a little bit of this chicken egg thing where you're an entrepreneur, you have a big vision, and you're looking for seed capital and you raise a million dollars. Well, you can't really do a lot. You can't hire the very best people because you don't have the money. And so you wind up hiring people, but they're not as good as they would be if you had the capital. And it sort of becomes self-fulfilling in some ways that and becomes riskier. And so we want to take that risk off the table and basically give founders with big ideas that we have the ability to, to execute $10 million of seed capital. It's this idea of go big early. And so you get $10 million of seed, and we expect you to, to use that capital to hire the very best team in the world in that area to give you a big advantage over any of your competition doing something similar in a similar area because you've got a better team. You've got the capital to build an incredible product. And then that kind of sets you up with an incredible team, incredible product for a, a really big Series A round, call it $50 million. And then with that $50 million that we, VCP, would help you know, kick off with, let's say, 20, will help you bring in other investors. Now you've got $60 million and that 50 to basically take this great team, this great product and start to blow it out. And we think that we can help make winners. That if you have a great founder and a big idea, it should work. It's usually capital and the people that hold it back. And so if you have capital, it allows you to hire great people and give you the best chance of winning. And it doesn't need to be where only three in 10 investments work. As a venture capital firm, we believe they could all work with the right person in the right area with the right amount of capital. So even in today's crazy market, $10 million seed round is obviously still big. I'm assuming you guys are acquiring a larger percentage of the company than normal at that stage. That's obviously different yes. than the traditional model. Why do you think that that will work compared to something else? Again, I think because most of these businesses that fail, they fail because they don't have enough capital and they're undercapitalized. And as a result, they're not able to hire the very best people. And so it could be like a, a great market growing, it's got tailwinds, it's got a good founder, but just because you don't have the capital, you take shortcuts, you don't invest in the product the way maybe you would have, you don't hire the very best people. And I just feel like that's the only reason why those businesses don't work. They should all work. If it's like a big growing TAM with tailwinds, great industry, it's hot, you got a great experienced founder, that should work like every single time. It's the only reason why it doesn't is capital and people. And so here's the capital. There's no excuses. You've got 60 million. You don't have to worry about raising capital. You have to just focus on the business. You can hire the very best people. So now let's compare to other startups in the space. You've got the capital. You've got the better people. You're a great founder and you're in this incredible market. Who's going to win? And, and even, if you, even if you don't necessarily win, it's unlikely you're going to lose. And anytime I see any startup where it lost, it sort of made bad decisions because it didn't have capital, hired bad people because it didn't have capital. And so we want to make the winners, basically. And I think that's it. If we own a high percentage of the company, somewhere between 40 and 60% of the company will own coming out of the A round. That A round is done, you know, 50 million. It's going to be at a 100 million plus pre-money. And now we own 50 to 60% of it. The next stop is a multi-hundred million dollar valuation on your way to a billion. And so I do think the probability of getting to a unicorn is so much higher, having that capital and a great team in the right market. So, yeah, I mean, it's sort of taking a page out of the playbook that I've used in my own startups, you know, whether it be diapers, jet, now wonder, even helping the guys at Archer, the eBTOL company that went public two years after it was founded. There is a playbook here that allows you to grow big, fast. Gotcha. I think that makes a lot of sense. Off of that, what industries or trends are you super excited about right now? I'm certainly really excited about Wonder and the trend we're in the food space. So explain what Wonder is for people who don't know. Yeah, it's basically we're creating next generation of restaurant chains. Basically, we, we created a, a mobile platform. It's basically a van, a Mercedes Sprinter van with a built-in kitchen. 
And we're building restaurant chains from the ground up that exist only on this mobile platform. And we've created 17 restaurant chains, everything from steakhouse all the way down to pizza and burgers and everything between Japanese, Chinese. Imagine pulling up the Wonder app and being able to access 17 of these restaurant chains that are mobile that will literally pull up outside your door in about 10 minutes, cook the food so it's really high quality, piping hot, and deliver it to your door. So that that's really Wonder in a nutshell. And we're live in 17 towns in New Jersey. And yeah, it's doing really well. Customers love the service and obviously much better than food delivery because the food is piping hot. You can get hot French fries, you can get a steak, you can get a grilled piece of salmon, and it's all cooked right there outside your door. And we do it in a high-speed impingement oven. It's like a convection oven on steroids. So we're actually cooking the food, but it cooks really fast. We can cook four pizzas simultaneously in three to four minutes. So that's part of the magic of Wonder is we spent the last three and a half years doing food science and food engineering to be able to cook this incredible quality food fast in a truck with someone who is low-skilled, low-trained. You don't need to be a chef to be able to cook the food really high quality. That's, that's Wonder in a nutshell. And you guys have exclusive deals with chefs, right? If I'm not mistaken, where you have their menus and, and whatnot on there also, right? Yeah. So we, we've went around the U.S. and found sort of the best restaurants and the best chefs. And we struck a deal where we would buy the rights to use the name and use the menu. But we'd have to build these restaurants from the bottom up to be able to go onto the mobile platform. So it's vertically integrated. We'll really you know, give stock and cash up front to these chef partners. You know, we've got some great partners. Bobby Flay is our Bobby Flay Steakhouse. You know, we've got Nancy Silverton, Pizzeria Moza from, from out near LA, Marcus Samuelson, Jose Andres, just some great, some great chefs, some great places. Gotcha. And how do you think about investing your personal capital? Obviously, you've done well and you've exited some of these businesses. You, you've bought assets also, and you have your own venture capital firm and you're investing a lot. But how do you think about personal asset allocation? Yeah, I don't really like to complicate life too much and get into too many different classes. It's basically three things, really. It's sort of have money in cash, have money in my existing startup that I'm all in and focused on, like Wonder. So I invested quite a bit in that company. Because I believe it could be a really big, successful business. And then it's putting money into the venture capital firm. So all the investments that I've made sort of outside of VCP are sort of becoming part of the VCP venture fund so that I don't have all this miscellaneous stuff out there. Like I think when you have investments in a lot of different asset classes and a lot of different things, then you need a family office and that adds complexity and time. And I like to be really focused. So I want to spend all my time basically on, on my existing startup and then the, the venture capital fund. And so that's how I sort of think about it. And then and the team too, but that's not from an investment standpoint. I don't really think about that. How does that work, by the way? I think I asked you this when we met the first time, but along the lines of like, how did you figure out what to pay? Was that a long process? And then do you just literally like wire them hundreds of millions of dollars or is that, is that done differently? <laughs> You mean the team? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it actually happened faster than we could have imagined it. I think Alex and I were, hey, do you want to meet Glenn Taylor, Minnesota Timberwolves? And at that point, we had lost the bid to buy the Mets, and we were kind of depressed. And we weren't, like, completely ready to get into a new relationship. <laughs> you know, we were, we were sort of uh, after we were dumped. And so we weren't really, like, fired up and like, oh, wow, this is going to be incredible. We're going to buy an NBA team now. We said, you know, we'll take the meeting. And we met with Glenn and Becky. And I don't know, we just really hit it off. And it sounded really fun. And we just connected with them in a way that got us fired up. We went from zero to 100 in like a few hours. And Alex and I both looked at each other and were like, you want to do this? And we're like, yeah, let's let's go for it. And I don't know, a few days later, we had signed the LOI and it all happened so fast. It was pretty incredible. We had heard that it would be tough to get a deal done because others have had a hard time getting a deal done with Glenn and Becky. But I think we just took a very different path. You know, we weren't mercenary private equity guys like coming in, trying to like get at the lowest possible price. Glenn and Becky had said, you know, this is the price we're looking for. And we thought it was fair. And so we just said, yeah, we'll do it for that price. We didn't negotiate at all. Most people say, how can you not negotiate? That seems crazy. I'm sure you left money on the table. And 
my answer there is sometimes the best way to negotiate is to know when not to negotiate. And this is one of those cases where it was a fair deal and it is a prized, there's only 30 of these teams in, in the NBA and felt like it was fair and it was not the time to negotiate. And so that's kind of how it got done. Mark, I am part of a investment group that is buying a small League Two team in Europe, a soccer club. They trade for like $5 million. And the process to buy it, it's going to be announced soon, but has taken like six or seven months <laughs> at this point. <laughs> and I love the fact, so I love the fact that you guys bought a, a $1.5 billion team in days when it came to negotiation and everything like that. So that's incredible. The last thing I want to talk about is just your general thoughts on what's happening in crypto, right? Have you spent any time looking at Bitcoin or any of the other assets or, or even any businesses from a venture capital perspective that are in the market? Yeah, no, I've definitely, I've definitely looked at it and, and helped Michael Rubin and team create the NFT company Candy as well. So yeah, I've definitely had my hands in it. I don't own any Bitcoin. I still a little bit uh, as an investment. I, I like the blockchain. I think there's a future for that technology. I think it's, there's so many use cases, but I also think there's a little bit of a bubble happening. I've just seen, I guess, too many, too many times without a clear way to value it from an intrinsic value standpoint. I just find it too hard to to get into the market. I mean, you you need to be able to definitively say like this is what it's worth based on these underlying fundamentals, and I can't do that, and so I shy away. Even though it, it could go up, it could double, it could triple, it could keep going. It's just not something that I I typically would engage in. Yeah. And I think it goes back to your other point also, which is like, you know what you're really good at and you're going to focus your time, energy and effort on that. Yes. And there's no reason to involve all these other asset classes and all these other things. Yeah. So last question. One of the sponsors of this show is Eight Sleep, who I work with a lot. So I want to ask about your sleep routine because it's one of the things I'm always fascinated about. They have a, it's essentially a thermoregulated bed. So it gets super cold, it gets super hot. I've been using it for about a year now. What is your sleep routine? Do you sleep eight hours, less than eight hours, more than eight hours? And how has that changed throughout the years? Yeah, so I always have slept eight hours. I need eight hours sleep and to be like high energy for the other 16. So I'm not one of these guys that I don't understand how people do when they say I sleep five, five and a half hours a night. I don't, I don't get that. I love my sleep. So yeah, I sleep eight hours. The temperature needs to be like 67, 66 degrees. Otherwise I'll overheat. So I think you know, getting the temperature right is really important. I think having a great sleep and I use the Fitbit to track sleep every night. And so I'm, I'm sort of addicted to that sleep score and just sort of trying to understand what things impact your REM sleep or your resting heart rate and things like that. And it's unbelievable how correlated it is to drinking alcohol. I mean, alcohol is the worst possible thing. And the closer you drink it to sleeping, the worse your sleep will be. And if I drink it you know, at three or four in the afternoon, which yep. is my new thing now, it's like, okay, you know, I don't want to mess up my sleep. I'm going to like drink at four in the afternoon, you know, so it's out of my system by the time I sleep, which is pretty funny, but yeah. <laughs> Sleep's so important in terms of energy and your ability to do everything you need to get done during the day. I love that. I'm going to have to try the happy hour at 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. <laughs> see how long I can get away with that. But no, it's it's certainly true. I wear a Whoop, which is similar to Fitbit and kind of attracts a lot of that stuff. And the biggest realizations is they ask you every morning when you wake up, right? Did you have any alcohol? Did you share your bed? Did you have stress? You know, like all the things that you would go through. Did you look at your phone in bed? And it makes a huge difference. And I had the CEO, Will Ahmed, on the podcast. And he said something that I'll always remember, which is basically like everyone he meets, if they're not getting four to five hours of deep sleep, right? Not just sleep, but like actual deep sleep where human growth hormone is being replaced and you're dreaming, and you're doing these things. He knows they're not happy, right? They're not in a good mood. They're not energetic or any of that stuff. And he can tell almost immediately. And I thought that was super powerful because one, this guy has spent his life and career trying to build a business around improving performance. So when he says something like that, you have to take note. Right. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things that like you realize is more important over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And food too, food and sleep. Those are the two things. What do you do for food? Oh, well, wonder, obviously, but like <laughs> what yeah, has changed about your, your diet? I mean, it just so happens that I, my stomach doesn't do well with like dairy and gluten. And so I've been gluten and dairy free for a long time. And I think, you know, and I don't eat really very much meat outside of chicken and, and fish, really. You know, so do you fast? Do you do intermittent fasting? Not on purpose. The goal is always to stop eating around, you know, 7, 730. And then I don't 
really eat anything until usually noon the next day, but not purposeful, but that is sort of like, I guess, intermediate fasting, you know? The other thing is that really affects your sleep is eating too late a big meal, like trying to not eat anything at least 12 hours before you're going to wake up. You know, that's always the, the good rule of thumb and that served me well. All right. Last question. How's your basketball game these days now that you're uh, an owner? <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. I, about six months ago, hired a, a professional NBA development coach, Phil Beckner, to basically teach me how to play because I was a big sports person, but I didn't play basketball. Funny enough, growing up, I played every other sport. And so I thought if I'm going to own a team, I probably should learn how to play. So I started that six months ago and was just got addicted to it until my knees really started to break down. Uh, it's not like at 50 years old, you can't be playing basketball four or five days a week, but I'm really into it. And it's fun. And, and you know, just if nothing else, just learning the game. You know, so when you watch the game, I watch it with a different perspective now because you're just learning more about what it takes to, to play. I feel like I'm going to log on Twitter one day and see a video of you and Alex playing one-on-one or something like that pop up. <laughs> well, I had this in the back of my head. You know, I played two-on-two with Joel Embiid many years ago, and he called me the worst basketball player he's ever seen. And I'm like, listen, dude, I, I've never played basketball, so like, give me a break. But it's stuck in the back of my head as not wanting to be labeled as the worst basketball player anyone's ever seen before, even if it is Joel Embiid. And so I'm sure now if I was to play, I would still be bad, but certainly not the worst <laughs> he's ever seen. Yeah, you just want to be above that level, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm okay to be a bad player, but the worst he's ever seen, that was too much for me. Yeah, I guess it helps a little bit that he's a he's an NBA all-star, but that's <laughs> hilarious. Mark, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I know you could be doing a million different things with your time. So thanks for jumping on here for an hour. Thanks, and we'll, we'll have to do it again soon. Okay, take care. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.